From the Transverse Network, this is The Transgender Show, an interview program about gender discovery and acceptance. I'm your host, Emily. This week on the show is Burger Becky Heinemann, video game programming legend and the first person to ever win a national video game tournament. First off, on your site, you identify yourself as, as a woman and as a mother. Did you used to be more public about the fact that you're trans? Is that an aspect of your identity that you have kind of gotten past or that you're, you keep a little bit more private? No, being trans is one of those things where I'm too famous to, uh, I would literally have to restart my life under a new assumed, you know, go into witness protection for all intents and purposes in order for me to hide the fact that I am transgender. Okay. Um, the, you know, it, years ago when I was doing my games back in the uh, 80s, 90s, and so forth, I went by the pseudonym Burger because I did not want to leave a, a trail of games with a name that I would have to disavow in my later years. <laughs> so I was kind of planning my transition for a very long time. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so... Um... Let's get into your your programming gaming history, and then we'll get into the history of your your transition and all of that aspect. Let me just run through the history really quick, and then feel free to stop me and add anything if you need to. I'm just going to give a quick overview so people can get up to speed on, on who you are. Your friend pushes you into entering a Space Invaders tournament in, in the Valley in California. You win that, and that sends you to New York. You win that and become the first person ever to win a national video game championship. You're our first esports champion. That leads you to meet and network with publishers and work on stories and work with them for books and magazines as basically a video game consultant on how to beat video games. And then one of those publishers um, makes a connection for you with Avalon Hill Game, a game company in Maryland. You go to work for them at the age of 14, lying about your age. Yeah, I lied about my age a lot of times. <laughs> so my first question along those lines is, why did your parents let a 14-year-old kid move to Maryland to um, start work at the age of, ripe old age of 14? You should have asked the question, did I have parents? Um, I was, during my youth, I was beaten and emotionally and physically by my parents for all of my memory. And what happened was that when I was around, by 14th, 15th birthday, around my 15th birthday, somewhere just before that, I ran away from home. And I was homeless, lived uh, near a dumpster, uh, behind a grocery store. Um, then I got myself a job at JCPenney at first their gas station at Whitwood Mall. Then I worked in their warehouse and the toy department when the Atari 2600 came out. And I was actually there at the toy store selling Atari 2600s. Um, that was how I was supporting myself. Mm-hmm. After this time in my life, I found out my parents divorced because occasionally I went home to see if it was safe for me to return. And then I found my mom had moved away from my dad. The dad was the one who was causing much of the abuse. My mom was an enabler, but her hands were not clean either. Um, But I was able to move back in with my mom. And it was only maybe two or three months later was when the contest happened. And then there was the Atari stuff and so on. But when I got the job offer to go work at the Avalon Hill Game Company, the game you're talking about in Towson, Maryland, um, I got the. I was on the phone. They told me, "Hey, we want to hire you," and they hired me right on that initial phone call. So I just simply packed up my stuff on a big steamer truck, and I had the next day a letter came overnight with it had my plane ticket in it. And then as I was walking out the door, my mother asked, where are you going? And I just turned, I, without even looking at her, I just walked, kept walking and said, out. And I remember that very vividly. And I got into the taxi, I called, and then they, he took me to the airport, and that was the end of it. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry that that didn't come up in anything that I, I came across. So I, I apologize for stepping in that one. No, well, the trouble is that it's an aspect of my life that I generally keep very private only because, you know, um, I'd rather be remembered for the things I've accomplished, not for, not to be pitied by the fact that I had an absolutely and utterly miserable childhood, which yeah. is why I had, um, you know, 
so little money that in a way it was the big motivation for me to self-teach myself how to do electronics, how to program computers, how to do this because no one was going to help me and I had to be pretty self-sufficient by the time I was 14. Wow. And there are aspects I'm not, I haven't even said about because now I know the in hindsight what really happened, which makes it even worse. <laughs> Was any of that part of the the fact that you were trans? Did was did that factor in at, at that point oh, yeah. at all? Or yeah, it it was. When I was being beaten, I noticed that my father didn't beat my two younger brothers. I was the only one being singled out. Mm -hmm. So internally, I already knew I was different. So that in my own mind allowed me to take the abuse because I thought it deserved it because I wasn't like my brothers. I wasn't normal. I wasn't a straight boy who did all stuff. I was a girl, but of course I was, you know, they tell me I was otherwise. So I knew there was something wrong with me because, but back in the seventies, there was no TV or media or anything that would even say what transgender is. No, in the eighties and even into the early nineties, there weren't any positive examples of oh. you know what being transgender was even when they started to come out it was on tabloid shows you know Mori Povich and and things like that um, Jerry Springer and so they were always really negative yeah um, they're very negative and they always uh, showed them as like uh, one step away from being a prostitute or um, they project them as mentally ill they were not positive role models when you think about the way they presented transgender people on Maury Povich, on Jerry Springer, especially Jerry Springer. Um, even Oprah and Sally Jesse Raphael, when they presented them, they were they were very, very rarely did they present them in a positive light. Yeah. So I had no frame of reference. You know, when I'm like a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old uh, girl, um, I just took it. And it wasn't until I was around 14-ish when I got the courage to just say, you know what, I don't know what's out there, but it's definitely better than what I'm dealing with here. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, my own transgenderism uh, just told me that I deserve to be homeless. I deserve to be punished because I am weird. I am different. Of course, today, you know, I would have, if I was a 10 year old today, I would already be on surfing the web. I would see some websites and I would see the word transgender. And I would say, there's a whole bunch of people that are just like me. Mm -hmm. And my life would have been vastly different than um, what I endured back in the seventies. Yeah, absolutely. So you knew, you knew from pretty much from the start then mm -hmm. that you were trans. Well, I never knew I was trans until like in my late 20s, because that's when I discovered what tra being trans is. All I knew was I was a girl and trapped in a boy's body. And that it made me, that by telling anybody this, I would be a social pariah. What had happened was that I kept who I was, truly who I was, a secret, until I joined up Electronic Arts. It was the first time I actually had a job, because up until then, I was. Oh, actually, it was my first time I had a job since Interplay. Because at Interplay, I was one of the owners of the company. So I really had a special privilege in addition to being there drawing a salary. And 11 and a half years went by. Then I moved on to form Logicware and then later on Contraband Entertainment. In both cases, I owned the company. And so, again, I had a special privilege there. But in 2003, Electronic Arts came by and says, hey, Here's a giant bag of money if you come join us as an employee. And I'm like, hmm, constantly starving for projects. Bag of money. Hmm. I'll take the bag of money. Within a few weeks of working there, I read their HR manual, their policy. It had a full plan on how to transition, saying, if you are transgender, you contact HR. You contact your manager. They, here's how you do the bathrooms. Here, and of course, they even said, if people bully you, we will fire the people who bully you. And that is when I actually first entertained the idea of coming out. Hmm. Um, shortly thereafter, I started a blog on LiveJournal and started writing out stuff. Now, of course, nobody knew, you know, nobody at work at the time, so maybe one or two friends were actually reading the journal and they realized, you know, I, I outed myself to them, but it was a, like, 
five or six months later, because um, I was going through therapy, I was doing all the appropriate uh, stuff, mm -hmm. when I finally followed the rules, saying, went to HR, went to my manager, and it couldn't have been more seamless because my manager, bless his heart, was that I told him who I was, I told him what was going on, and his response was, can you still code? And I go, yeah. Still gonna do your job? Yeah. Then get back to work. And that was this entire, and that was the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was one of my staunchest defenders. And from that moment on, I came out to the world. In fact, I posted up. I think it was early 2005 when I actually, because I was out at EA for at least three or four months um, to everybody doing that stuff um, until I finally went to the public and say, "Hey, I'm here." And then. It was only a few months after that I finally went to have uh, my first surgery, which was to do the face. Mm. And um, it's been smooth sailing ever since. <laughs> that, that, that's so wonderful to have that support. And that's kind of what, what we all strive to get to, right? Is that I'm transgender. Okay, so what? Like, you know, now what? You know, that was something that, that Eddie Izzard said that I really loved. You know, we just it, we don't want it to be a thing at all. We're just here. We're women. All good. Move on. I mean, I I hope one day, um, may not be my generation, but maybe your generation or the generation following you, in which being transgender is about as interesting as what color is your hair. And and therein is, you know, we're moving closer to what I hope would be a perfect world. Closer. We're inching, but we're, we're getting there, right? Um, we're getting there. Have you run into any roadblocks or any kind of speed bumps since coming out in the, the, the gaming industry outside of EA? Only at the beginning. Um, after leaving EA, I did uh, projects for other companies, and I did find, um, well, also, when I came out, I did lose friends. There are people who I've known for decades, and even to this day, they refuse to talk to me. I don't understand why, because even though it's now been decades and they themselves must have seen stories of transgender people in the media, TV, news, et cetera, but for their choice, they simply do not want to return any messages I send to them. And like in one case, I actually bumped into one of my old friends at a gaming trade show and he just turned around and walked away. Um, but thankfully, a majority of my friends are still my friends. Mm -hmm. And over the time, They've now bonded with the new me, but it's really, you know, they, they could see how much happier I was because they could see how before they always knew there was something about me that was sad. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I try to mask it with humor and try to mask it, but they, oh, you can still see through the veneer that something was off. But now, you know, in the last almost two decades now, um, they say I'm just more outgoing, more happy, more energetic. I have a glow about me which never existed in the before times. Yeah. And therefore, you know, it, and of course, you know, my only regret of coming out was that I wish I'd done it earlier, but then again, EA made it, Electronic Arts made it so painless and so easy that it may be um, putting a bubble around me because, you know, I still know around the 2003, 2004 time, it's still a difficult time for people to come out. Yeah. But, you know, today it's a lot easier, but back then, you know, all it would have taken is just one homophobic manager who would work behind the scenes to stab me in the back to make my life miserable. I did not have that. Mm -hmm. Was that one of the reasons that you um, didn't come out when you were working at the companies that you owned? Was there a fear that, like, if, you know, someone at the, at the, the top of the company that public facing was trans, that it would interfere with your ability to get work? Well, in a way, yes. Uh, what happened was like at Interplay, uh, I knew some of the people at the top were homophobic. In fact, they were also very misogynistic. Um, mm -hmm. So I knew Interplay, there was no way in hell that I was going to come out. And it was my biases, or sorry, my, my fears were confirmed because in 1994-95, we had one person actually come out at Interplay. And the abuse I saw they put that girl through confirmed everything that I knew, or at least everything I suspected about the latent homophobia and misogyny that was at the top. Um, so it kept my mouth shut. 
Now, when I formed Logicware after leaving Interplay, I was just more focused on just running the company and keeping my family, you know, fed. Because you know, when you run a company, the finances just overwhelm you. But there was that thing in the back of my mind, knowing that if I came out, who would work for me? Who would come take a job from a uh, transgender person? Especially this was 1995, 96. Not exactly a good year for uh, trans people to come out. Um, thankfully, everybody followed me when we formed Contraband Entertainment in late 99. And then um, at last or four years when EA came in and just scooped us up and uh, brought us into the fold. And then of course, you know, my fears were confirmed because some of the people who worked for me were more like, I really work with them. They don't work for me, I work with them. Uh -huh. um, some of them are on that list of people who are never speaking to me again. So therefore confirmed that had I been CEO of the company and came out, I would have had several people's resignations. Mm. Yeah, and then when you have a and, when it's a small team, you know you can't lose half the team and still have the company stay afloat. And oh yeah, perfect I sense. Mean, I, it wasn't half; it was like two people. But they, one of them was a key person, and he was irreplaceable. And had he left me while we were in certain parts of the lifespan of contraband entertainment, it would have killed the company. Mm. I mean, because uh, I didn't have the kind of cash reserves to be able to find a person of his caliber and bring him into the company. Um, yeah, because a person like that would have demanded a piece of the company or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so there you go. I love something that a uh, former guest and a friend said on the show, actually, that when those people leave, those people that, that can't accept you or whatever they leave, it's just the trash taking itself out. And I love that. I love that statement. In some ways, it is like one of the, of the two people. One of them, what I would consider the trash taking himself out. He was somebody who, he was a valuable person in the company. I mean, everybody was, let's just be blunt. Everybody at the company contributed something. Mm -hmm. um, but it's one where he would have been easy to replace. Um, but the other one, that hurt, because he was a very, very close friend of mine. Um, you know, my, I was helping him with his wedding, um, you know, just, so many ups and downs and we worked on so many projects together and I consider him even to this day a dear dear friend but he made his choice that he just did not think that our friendship should continue as me being who I truly am mm -hmm. and that's one where I'm, I'm saddened by this that he made that choice but again it's his choice not my choice mm -hmm. so I've moved on made a whole bunch of new friends and I'm I have, I really do have hundreds of friends, real friends. Um, and I know this for sure because like, it's been known if you follow my Twitter feed about a little over three months ago, actually no, four months ago, I fell and broke my leg. Oh wow. And even now I'm still using Walker to get around. Oh, poor girl. But the number of people who sent me well wishes some people who even helped donate to help my medical expenses, and the number of people who came during even during this pandemic to come and help do things like uh, lift up blinds, move my computers around, and so forth. You know, all volunteers just and all it is because they said, "Hey, can you help me?" And then they said, "When do you want me to arrive?" Those are friends. Yeah. So I know I have good friends. So, you know, other people could join my ranks of friends, but. It's their choice, just like, you know, I could join other people's ranks of friends only if they will have me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the um, misogyny that you ran into in even in your, your group of, of closest friends. I loved hearing about when you were working on Bard's Tale 3 and you made it a point to add in female characters and um, characters of color, more more diversity in there. And uh, Michael Cranford, the original creator, the, the creator of the, the seed that became Bard's Tale, told you that girls don't play games and that's why they weren't female characters. Yeah, and he said this directly to me. He's today denying that he ever said that, but I will never forget it because, you know, here it is, I'm a girl. He didn't know at the time. 
Mm-hmm. But he said it to me, and it burned into my head because I was really pissed off when he said that. Because I can imagine. here it is, I'm playing all these games at Interplay, creating them. I'm working on Bard's Tale, the tools and the ports of the 2GS and all the other stuff. And he and I'm playing the game, and he just says to my face, girls don't play these games. <laughs> Again, that, that was like around 1985, 86. Mm-hmm. Um, Outing myself means I would be out of a career and be pumping gas again. And of course, if you look at Michael Cranford, he's since then gone on seminary and now he is a minister, I believe, and so forth. He, um, just Google him, you could find all that information on your own. But, mm-hmm. uh, but it explains a lot. It explains his misogyny and his uh, conservatism and his rigidity. But the thing was, is I did ask him several times, you know, why can't we just have female characters? It's not that hard to implement. So when I took over the project and made Bard's Tale 3, the first thing I did with that code was to put in female characters. And it only took about a week worth of work. And because I had to implement a pronoun system, the game itself didn't really have pronouns, such as like, when a monster is hit, you have to say, blah, blah, and killing him and killing her killing it or killing the name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had four different pronouns and I had to implement that and it had put the a pronoun support in your character's creation. Um, and uh, then just put a, two different lists of pictures. One is for all pictures for the male version of the classes, one's for the female version of the classes. And then I just had the art uh, done and there we go, female characters. It was that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, for true equality, being male or female in Bard's Tale 3 gives you nothing. There is no stat boost whatsoever for being a male or a female. It's just how you want to represent yourself because I didn't want to change play balance that way. You know, since then, of course, I rewrote the entire game um, to using an engine I created, and that's what Bard's Tale 3 shipped with. Mm. Um, but it was made from the ground up to say, hey, look, female characters. And when people played Bard's Tale 3, it got critically acclaimed and people made note of the fact that I can now adventure as a female with a female avatar in my party. And people enjoyed that. Hmm. So Bard's Tale 3, was, that sounds like that, that was one of the first games to have that ability. Was it the first? I'm not sure. It's possible Ultima 2, Ultima 1 or 2 might have beaten me on that one. Okay. Um, but that's something, you know, you may want to uh, do a little research to figure that out. I mean, for the Bard's Tale series, I can tell you it was the first one that had female characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would probably say that another game may have beaten me to it, but who knows? But definitely one I of don't... the first games at, at Interplay then that had that featured female characters. Oh, yeah. It was the first game because at the, well, to put it in perspective, it was the first, Bard's Tale was the first games that had um, characters. Because beforehand, when I did Mind Shadow, Tracer Sanction, Borrowed Time, Past Times, and Tone Town, the protagonist was a character the game already had, and you just played the role of the protagonist. Which, by the way, in all four games was male. Mm-hmm. Um, but later on, um, because I know I tried to get a female protagonist for uh, Task Times in Tone Town. I was shot down because, you know, somebody at the top was a misogynist. So. <laughs> Going back to when, when you came out and you had a, you had a lot of negativity, um, did you have any people that supported you that you weren't expecting? You know, as you start to see some of these people f- fall off, then did you have other people you're like, well, that person will, will probably go too, and then they surprised you with the, their level of support? Oh, yeah. There were quite a few people who I thought were going to be raving misogynists because they were kind of misogynists to um, other people, but they were some of my most ardent supporters. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll take that. Um, It's the adage of you never really know who your friends are until you need them. And they will surprise you. Some people who you think are going to leave you high and dry are the ones throwing you a life preserver. Where others who you could swear are gonna have your back are the ones who disappear uh, when the chips are down. Mm-hmm. And this is the way it was. I mean, the while overall a majority of people were supportive uh, with a 
large minority ambivalent in which they're like, you know, you're trans, I'll accept it. Not really cool with it, but I'll accept it. Mm -hmm. And then the small minority, which is like, don't ever call me again. That's the thing that I think a lot of us have found, and it's kind of wonderful. You, you, there, there are those ones that you lose, like you said, that that really pain you. But for the most part, it, I, I find that the people that support you are are the lion's share. It's the bigger, the bigger group by far. Yeah, and that's a wonderful thinking. Feeling. Yeah, thinking about it, I think the person who shocked me the most, who accepted me, was my mother. Wow. Uh, my father had already passed away when I came out, mm-hmm. so that's one that will always be a what if. But my mom, while she was very sick and so forth, and we had been estranged for quite some time, I contacted her, then I came out to her, and she was like, what, whatever makes you happy. Hmm. And I was absolutely convinced she was going to yell expletives at me, demand money from me, because that's what she usually did, and uh, hang up. But no, she was actually loving and supporting. And that's the person who I think I would have to say shocked the heck out of me. Wow. So then at, at towards at that, that last kind of twilight period of, of her life, were you guys able to kind of establish a little bit of a relationship then? We did. Um, it was during her last year of life. Um, my mom was a chain smoker, so that's why her life was cut quite short. Um, but during her last year, she started coming around and realizing what she had done to me. And then that's when she confessed to me what really was going on and what the real life story, which really reads like an episode of Law and Order SVU, which is like, okay, I didn't see that coming. Uh-huh. But um, she then, you know, after she let go of her sin, you know, confessed her sins, she then just started actually acting like a mom. My only thoughts was, I could have used you when I was 10 years old. Um, but I took what I could get, which was just, hey, hi, mom. Uh, call her from time to time. And then uh, I got the news one day that she wasn't with us anymore because mm-hmm. the lung cancer, emphysema, chain smoking, um, took her. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you find community at EA? Was there, Were there other LGBT people there? Um, or, oh, or when did you first find a good, solid LGBT community to be a part of? Um, my very first one was Eagle, E-A-G-L, which is the Gay and Lesbians of um, Electronic Arts. And oh, I reached out to them shortly after I came out and went to their, uh, they, it's not really support groups, it's our meetings and just stuff like that. Then I went to the LA uh, Gay and Lesbian Center where I helped contribute money to them. I went ahead and volunteered for them. I even did some talks and stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were not public events. They were kind of like, they were bringing the trans people from the trans community and they were all kind of um, under the radar. And then I would just go ahead and talk to them, give them hope because again, back in 2003 to 2005, when I was doing this, um, it was still one of those where a majority of trans people kept their mouths shut. Yeah about who they were so they would only be who themselves be themselves in these meetings or at certain bars and clubs um whereas when they went back home to their families and uh, jobs they were once again donning the mask of the lives that they were supposed to live not the lives that they should be living Mm -hmm. Uh, but since then um i worked at the Dallas uh, Resource Center because I went to Dallas, worked there, then in uh, LA. But since then, I'm now one of the uh, people helping uh, with GLAAD, G-L-A-A-D. I was one of its board members and helping, you know, getting money contributed to good works. And I'm their consultant on the video game field. Mm -hmm. So they contact me all the time about, hey, this video game, what do you think? What we should do about it? And I tell them what I I think should be done. And uh, then they act upon it. You've also been part of various other uh, in, company internal groups, LGBT groups, correct? Uh, you, were a, yeah. you were the transgender chair at Amazon, right? Yeah, I was at Glamazon. I was one of its chairs for about uh, four or five months because my tenure there wasn't really that long. Mm-hmm. I was at was so Glamazon. I was at uh, uh, Gleam, which is the Gay and Lesbian Employees at Microsoft. Okay. G-L-E-A-M. Isn't that really cute? Yeah. Um, these are all cute. I love all these. Um, but at Sony, what was funny was that I actually had people coming up to me. I mean, there was an employee at Sony 
who was married, had a child, and then he took me aside and we had several coffees where he came up to me as being gay and asked me for advice on who do I go to? How do I come out to my wife? How do I come out that I have a boyfriend? Blah, blah, blah. And I helped him get through it all. And yeah. uh, now, of course, you know, divorce. I mean, that's a sad story, but straight woman, gay man, doesn't really work out. But yeah. he's now with his husband and uh, with his son, and they're living a very, very happy life. So it ended with a happy ending. Mm -hmm. But it was because I've been very... Um, public and very open about both my sexuality and about my history that people feel confident coming out to me and just asking for at least you know the first steps in getting um not necessarily advice because what i usually do is i just tell them hey you live in such and such these are the organizations you should contact for the first steps of just exploring who you are Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it's not my place to tell people what to do. It's my place to just say, here's some therapists you should talk to. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and occasionally I get the weirdos, which is ones where they're not really trans. They're just pervs. And mm -hmm. I would send them over to, like, rehab or to say, um, you know, you keep going down this path. You're going to be spending your life in jail. Um, mm -hmm. Stop it. And only in one case... After I got the conversation done, I had to call the police because huh. of what he was saying and what he was thinking. And I'm like, uh, uh, the, you need a lot more help than I could ever hope to give you. <laughs> Do you have any advice for people that are uh, chairing or part of those groups? Like, what are some of the key things that you need to remember and that you need to work on? Well, getting one of the groups going is very, very simple. You just simply have a create the group, just announce that it exists. Um, if you're in a small business or small company, you just simply say, hey, I want to create a um, LGBT plus, um, we usually call them affinity groups, in which it's, there's no membership or anything. It's just saying, hey, you are LGBT and you want to promote healthy examples and role model issues of being LGBT, come to our meeting once a month in the lunchroom. Mm -hmm. Or you know, if you feel the environment's not open to having such an affinity group on premises, just say, hey, we're going to the Olive Garden and meeting and having lunch over there, and then we can talk. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's again, back to every, there is no one size fits all. Um, but you know, if there's a group, join it. If there's no group, start it, because groups don't start on their own. They have to be done by somebody who's willing to put in the work, mm -hmm. and there is work. I mean, it's it, it's not like, hey, we have an affinity group and that's all the work you need to do. No, you've got to say, start planning the agenda, start talking, um, you know, what it is that you, and you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve? I mean, if the company's already so pro-LGBT that there's rainbows painted on the walls, you may not necessarily need an affinity group. Uh -huh. um, but if it's a place where people may feel, you know, like you know that there's an, a, an employee who's a misogynist or something like that, then you already know, okay, the company's not getting rid of these people. Maybe we should make an affinity group. And then together as a block, once the numbers are large enough, then we could talk to HR and say, you know what? Misogyny is not cool. Homophobia is not cool. And I'm speaking for a group of 10 people or 20 people. And that carries a lot of weight. Then you just going in by yourself and saying, hey, we should change this policy or something. But it always goes back to, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Like, does HR have a transgender uh, policy? If not, then your affinity group can sit down and write one. Or you could just simply get the EA handbook and copy and paste. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what we did in some places. Mm -hmm. um, just took somebody's, what seems to be well thought out strategy, copy and paste it, change it to be more in line with the company values. And then now you have a policy. Mm -hmm. but Policies don't appear because of uh, magic. They appear because somebody took the time and did the work to get it done. Um, how, how did you meet Janelle? She came out to me. Oh. Um, even to this day, I have people, random strangers who would contact me through Messenger, Skype, um, now Discord who would say, hey, I'm struggling. And then I would say, hey, what's going on? 
we'd talk, develop a friendship. And in most cases, I would give them the resources they need and I would never hear from them again. Mm-hmm. Other people would come back every now and then and we'd talk. Janelle, on the other hand, we just kept talking and, and started becoming friends because we had so much in common. I mean, she's in the game industry, I'm in the game industry. She's an artist, I'm a programmer. Where we're opposites in that field, we are complement because I keep saying, hey, I need art for the games I'm writing because I can't draw. Mm-hmm. And she's like, hey, I need a programmer for the games I like to do because I can't program. Hmm, teamwork. <laughs> but um, as time went on, our friendship went on and on, and we were just friends for well over a year. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing more than friends. But then uh, one day she wanted to have the um, a birthday party to make up for the previous birthday party. She had a, at the time, she had a wife and they planned this birthday party for her and no one came. So she was all bummed out about the fact that none of her friends from work came to her birthday party. Mm-hmm. Well, a year later, she'd already now divorced, she's moved on with her life and she's on the verge of coming out. I suggested, why don't you come over? She's living in Atlanta at the time and I lived in the Bay Area. And I said, why don't you come over, spend your birthday over at my place and I'll give you a tour through San Francisco and you could be you. This is like her coming out and dressing up as herself mm-hmm. because she's in a town no one knows her. She could be safe and, and be public because there's no possibility that anyone from work can accidentally bump into her. That complete safe environment. Yeah, perfect. So she flew out. I then gave her a first took her to an affinity group meeting of uh, Glee, Microsoft where she's like, I'm in a room filled with, um, you know, LGBT game developers. I am embarrassed, but uh, she was, it, it broke the ice. And then after that, I then took her to the pier, took her all the way up around New Fisherman's Wharf. I took her mm-hmm. around Alts. And we just had a wonderful weekend. But that's what kind of started her having the hots for me. <laughs> but at the time, I would just still viewed her as my friend. Mm-hmm you know, sent her home. But then after that, you know, we would kept talking on Skype and uh, yeah, it was mostly Skype. And we would just every day, we just have each other on Skype and just tell each other what's going on. And then one day I just noticed that when I was telling her about the fact that I had a date with someone and it didn't turn out really well, she, I saw like her face like flinched. Uh-huh. And I realized, wait a minute, <laughs> do you have feelings for me? I just asked her the flat point blank and she goes, maybe. <laughs> she says, hmm. Hmm. Let's give it a show. Let's give this a go. And she's like, Squee! And well, um the fun thing is is that it's um after um six months, we were pretty much inseparable and that wasn't much longer after that when um you know, we became a couple and we've been together ever since. We're bordering now on nine years, eight, nine years together. Oh, that's wonderful. And uh, obviously we are working out because I can attest that during those entire time, we've never raised our voices to either of us. I mean, I've never had to raise my voice to her. She's never had to raise my voice, her voice to me. Uh, we're always like adults. When we do have disagreements, we talk about it like adults and work it out. Um, and to me, that's like so different from relationships I had in the past where I had, um, you know, uh, my, uh, my my first wife, she was constantly, you know, she would be the, the, uh, the nag where she would tell me, do this, do that, yelling at me and yelling at me. And, I'm, and we're, we were never a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another relationship, which I found she was kind of like bipolar and that didn't help. Um, and I dated other people, which they all had, the chemistry just wasn't there, but nothing compared to the violence that I saw with my own family, my mother and father. You know, it's like something straight out of a uh, police drama where, you know, my dad would be breaking things and hitting my, either me over the head with a plate or my mom with a plate or bashing our heads against the wall and so forth. And of course, for me, I thought that was a relationship because that's obviously how families, exists yeah um but no 
being with Janelle has taught me what a real relationship is like. And it's one where that I really see myself uh, dying of old age with her. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful, especially yeah, since like you said, you came from that such that horrible example, and you know you left before you really got to see any resolution to it. So um, that that's really commendable, and I love that you you were able to find that with her. You guys are the 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 perfect pairing there. I love that the the compliments of the programmer and the artist. There's just so many aspects of that that are that are perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you choose your name? Where did Rebecca come from? Really, it's that um, it came from my old nickname. Um, I had Burger uh, followed by the old name, and I thought, what would work with Burger? So it's Burger Betty, Burger Becky, Burger Barbara. And Becky was the one that I just rolled off the tongue. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to make sure because I was still, when I was about ready to come out, I made a whole roadmap of what to do and what to avoid. One of the examples was like, when I was at therapy and group sessions, I saw some trans girls with names like Electra, <laughs> names with, uh, you know, um, can, uh, like Candy and so forth. And I'm like, how are you expect to be taken seriously if your name is Candy? Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, it, you know, of course, you know, just with an I and some weird spellings and Electra and all these really like uh, ge- names a nine-year-old girl would come up with. Uh-huh. Um, I was like, no, I like professional. Rebecca Ann Heinemann. That sounds like a name of a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, you know, you know, Burger Becky. Burger Becky works. So Becky is Rebecca. Hmm. My middle name should be about as boring as possible. Anne. So Rebecca Ann Heinemann. You know, Esquire. Okay, that works. There's my name. That's wonderful. Do you actually have Esquire legally in your name? No, I okay. be a lawyer or something like that. But it's, it's, it's back to would it sound good with the word Esquire after it? Would it sound like Dr. Rebecca Ann Heineman? Would, mm-hmm. would you see President Rebecca Ann Heineman? Does the name sound something so boring, so formal, something that would appear on the top of a resume mm-hmm. that no one would give, no one would do a double take at all and think yeah. that this person, obviously by her name, must be someone that uh, has at least a tiny bit of credibility to it. Um, so you, when when you were going through all of this and you know, choosing your name and all all of these things, you didn't have did or did you have a transgender role model? Did you have anybody no. you could look to? No. Nope. Just tra- nope. trailblazing. I was trailblazing my own mind. See, the thing is, I didn't know about Lynn Conway until later. If I had known about her, I would consider her the, the kind of role model I had. But the only people that I knew it was like Danny Bunton, who was essentially ostracized from her family. Um, the person who worked at Interplay, I will not say her name, a lot of privacy reasons. Um, but you know, I saw them both come out and they were completely smashed. Uh, so they were not exactly role models because they were more role models why you should keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, the sad truth of it. Yeah, so th- that's the kind of role models I had at the time I was coming out. I just was one where, you know what, um, I'm going in, I have this, what I hope is a shield with EA's uh, HR policy, and thank goodness it actually worked. Even with the EA HR thing, I had never seen anybody come out and succeed. Mm-hmm. So I was scared out of my mind, so I actually had a plan B. Um, as I was doing my um, therapy and stuff like that and preparing to come out to the whole company, I was already saving up money and getting a loan so I can then go ahead and get my facial surgery. The whole plan was if I got fired or somehow forced out, I would have my face and then I could essentially start from a uh, clean slate, maybe change my last name. Mm-hmm. So that'd be Rebecca Hines, Rebecca Ann uh, Smith or something like that. And just say, I'm a good programmer. And, you know, nobody cares what's between your legs uh, when you're going for a job interview, but they sure as hell care about your face. Okay. And I had my face done. And, but thankfully it turned out they didn't need to invoke plan B because of EA. But after I'd left electronic arts um i had numerous times where i would be working with somebody 
and they would say, so do you have a brother? Because I know there's this person named Heinemann who did Bard's Tale and so forth, and you look kind of like him. <laughs> and I go like, uh, I had one person who thought I was his wife and even sent me a, um, a uh, what was it? A, a request for job interviews saying, hey, we found you're a programmer and man, if if this guy is your brother and you're just as good as him, we want you on the team. And also, <laughs> could you put a good word in for him so he could join too? And I then had to pick up the phone and give him the call. Uh-huh. <laughs> to to which he was like, he wasn't deterred by it. So, okay, cool, twofer. Uh, you know, we get a diversity hire and we get this programmer who's an insane uh, person. Yeah. Um, oh, that's amazing. When it does this, when it makes the switch from, you know, it, it being a negative to where it's a positive and companies view it as, oh, like, yeah, we get to check off a, a diversity box there. Yeah, I get those too. But the, um, but the real thing was, is just that um, the fact that they never even suspected I was trans. Now, of course, you know, not long after that, I had the full surgery. So I'm now 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, you know, the whole issue was is that the first impression is always the best. And when I saw my face, um, it gave me jobs. So to me, it was the most, um, it was the best money I ever spent. It was a lot of money to do this, but, uh, and it hurt like heck. I could tell you, it's like, uh, it felt like, you know, torture for a couple of weeks during the healing process. But afterwards, um, it opened so many doors for me for my career that it's one of the reasons why I was as I am as successful as I am today, because the fact that I looked the part, and we still even to this day have first impression bias. Mm-hmm. Um, your your voice is perfectly feminine. How long did that take? I practiced it in my car driving to and from electronic arts for about six months. Okay. Um, the, the biggest problem comes back to practice. Mm-hmm. I just put in the work. Every day my drive was a half an hour each way and I first had voice tapes. I went to a um, voice therapist for a little while and then it was just practice, practice, practice. And one of my biggest practices, I wrote these uh, novels. Um, Sailor Moon um, fan fiction, okay, and yeah. I re- I recorded audiobooks of them. It was to oh. force me to to speak in my voice. So I have old recordings in which I listen to them. And says, man, that sounds masculine. Then I have later tapes. I would just listen to them, and I go like, it's the voice you're hearing right now. And that's when I go, okay, I'm listening to tape. It sounds very feminine. I've got the inflections. So what's funny is the inflections and the, my manner of speaking, I didn't change any of that because I was already speaking like a girl um, since I was little. Oh, okay. But the um, higher pitch and so forth and the um, the use of the nose and so forth, um, that was practice. And now it's practiced to the point where it's just second nature. I don't even think about it anymore. I mean, to me, this is my natural voice. I mean, I, in fact, for me to try the old voice again, I actually have to do the equivalent of voice acting. I would have to, okay, how would I speak? Okay, well, how would you, how would you speak? Like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I could speak like, like, like Sparkle or what was it? Like, uh, it's, they tell me I have a good George Decay. Oh my. <laughs> like that but again it's voice acting mm-hmm. and right now this is my natural voice when i don't even think about speaking this is it but it's only because i spent easily six months practicing at least an hour a day mm-hmm. for six months um so if anybody out there thinks that they could change their voice in a weekend and have a perfectly natural sounding voice um i've also got this bridge in brooklyn i can sell you um <laughs> gotta put in the work and, and that's been one of my uh, pet peeves so, uh, all throughout my career and so forth, where I would see people who think success comes easily or success um, comes naturally. It's success only, you know, my whole career, the only reason I have, I'm successful is I put in the work. You don't want to know how many hours I had to work to get all those games written. Mm-hmm. They don't write themselves. Those are just hard work. And I use that very same um, drive. You know, the drive I use to be able to re- learn how to program in C, learn to program in assembly, teach myself computer um, programming and hardware, 
I just applied it to changing my voice, changing my mannerisms, mm-hmm. um, you know, acting feminine instead of masculine, you know, unlearning and then learn again. So put in the work. Are there any things that make you feel dysphoric these days? It sounds like you've you've completely mastered it. Once you got the facial surgery and worked on your voice, um, it sounds like you, you just kind of passed completely. The, the dysphoria ended about a year after people couldn't clock me anymore. Mm-hmm. About uh, what, for me, it was around 2008, 2009, um, was when I really, really truly realized that I made it. And this <laughs> is a funny story. I took a contract at a company called Sensory Sweep. They're based in Salt Lake City. They don't exist anymore, but they were run by a bunch of Mormons. And in fact, almost all the employees were Mormons. The, the boss knew me as you know all my career, so he already knew I was trans. Okay. But he never bothered to tell anybody at the company I was trans. Okay. What had happened was that on my, I, my first day of work, I came in and I saw this like circular cubicle which had like some like eight or nine desks inside of it, and there was like four or five people looking over the wall beating looking over at the front desk of the office i came in through the back because i went to go talk to the ceo to finalize my paperwork show my you know my passport get the i9 stuff done so you know even though i'm a contractor i still had to do the legal stuff mm-hmm. so i then went up behind these guys and i could hear them talk so when's he coming because well, what's going on it's a guy in a dress like how do you know so oh i just did google search on the name blah 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 you know i could spot a trans person file away and so like and so i was standing there i'm just like okay hey guys they look at me it's like uh, and they look back to the front and it's like who's I just some girl it's like okay who, what's like it's like he's looking and it's, it's like hey i'm supposed to talk to you guys it's like uh, and they look at me again it's like uh yeah who are you it's like um I'm new here. So, oh, cool. Um, you know, HR is over there and the artist stations is over there. It's like, okay. And then once again, they go back looking at the desk. It's like, all righty then. So I just sat down and just watched them, you know, dig their own graves for a few more minutes. And um, I then said, look, dudes, I'm a programmer. So it's like, Wow, a girl programmer. Wow, and then that's when they all start huddling around me, going like, "Hey, you know, girl, they want to go on a date." Says, "Hey, you're a little old for me." Yeah, it's like, well, <laughs> dudes, dudes, chill." And then I, that's when I said, "Look, I'm your new programmer. I'm working with your team, and I'm doing this with." So it's like, "But who are you?" Says, so "I'm Rebecca Ann Heineman." So it's like, and then one guy looks to the other, and says, "You lied to me. It's really a girl. Where did you hear this stuff right there?" Blah, blah. And they were arguing over each other about the fact that this one guy, who obviously did the googling, must have been mistaken. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sitting there, just like, I don't give a shit. Just show me the course source repository is, so I can go ahead and get to work. And then, a couple of weeks later, was when they then realized the guy was telling the truth and they were like are you transgender that's not what my church told me this was be a guy in a dress it's like i'm a girl in a dress what'd you expect it's like i didn't expect you and i over the course of the next couple of months i educated a lot of people there about that their church was lying to them and that this is what a transgender person is and then i ended up with saying like do so do you think i should be going into the men's room it's like no in fact i'd be weirded out if you were in the men's room it's like good now you're now you're learning ah <laughs> oh, that's such a wonderful story i love the fact of just making him making him twist in the wind for a little bit before you uh really did it oh yeah when i yeah when i realized that they just oh it's just a girl and i'm like okay i'm definitely a girl because i'm being treated with just as much no one gives a shit about me and they're like oh she can't be a programmer she's a girl okay (laughs) obviously i completely transitioned yeah, it's, just, it's such a bizarre industry for you to have worked in. It's this boys club industry, and you're either way you were damned. If you're trans or if you're a woman, either way, 
They have something against you. Well, it's the um, adage, like you've read articles recently about black people who have skin light enough that they're mistaken for being white. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they get to hear what white people actually say to each other when they don't think a black person's around. Uh It's not pretty. Same goes for me. There were numerous times, especially at Interplay, when I was around a bunch of men, which in most cases that was everywhere, in which they would say some of the most misogynistic, uh, demeaning things about women, and I had to keep my mouth shut because there's a woman among them, but because they didn't know that, they were being open and frank about how much they treated women as objects. It's very, very eye-opening. It really got a, It really stops you in your tracks of like, well, is this... Is this something I really want to do? Because, yeah, this, I'm just going to subject myself to all this horrible hatred and, and misogyny and, and just general weirdness from the general population. Yeah. Well, one thing that um, I have an advantage is because the fact that I did enjoy male privilege for you know many of the early years of my life. So I could spot the casual misogyny okay. mm-hmm. uh, where someone would be saying something, you know, or just ignoring me. Like I would be in a room with a bunch of people who were all tossing ideas around. I would say an idea and then they're just still talking. Then a man would say the same thing I did. And then they would listen to him. Yeah. I would at least, because I recognize it, I would then speak up and I would say, no, this was my idea. You're just copying it. And then I would be assertive about taking it. You know, once in a while, I would have to bring it up saying, you do understand what you just did was uh, casual misogyny. And it said, yeah, because I spoke and you ignored me and then he spoke and I, he said the same thing I did and you listened to him. You know, I have a seat at the table, but unless you listen to me, I'm just window dressing. Um, and of course I've had my share of people saying, oh, you know, they would go to a man and say, oh, that guy's a go-getter, he's assertive. And then they would go to me and they would say to my face, I am a bitch. <laughs> because I'm acting the same way as a guy. But yeah. you know, bitches get shit done. <laughs> that's such a great way to look at it, yeah. Ah, that's ridiculous. I can't believe that's still a thing. Look at it this way, quite plainly. We have a lot of work to do to wipe out misogyny, racism, homophobia, xenophobia from this country. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a lot of work to do. As we wrap up the the section about being transgender, do you have any advice that you give to young or closeted transgender people? Well, for one, in my day, you whippersnappers, I I got fired immediately, and no, and we didn't know who who, who was trans and who wasn't. Guys, happened so easy. Gosh, I wish <laughs> I wish I was born in the year two thousand or two thousand ten, because then, oh. The very fact that the young can express themselves so freely, I envy you. I envy you so, so much. But at the same time, we live in a dangerous world. Don't ever let your guard down. You know, don't think that because, you know, you go to your school and you're showing off your true nature that creepazoids out there won't try to do something to you. And also, we still have a lot of parents out there that when you come out to them, it's not going to be pretty. However, if you're in a situation like that, once you're 18, you can get the heck out of there, get yourself a job, and be among friends. If they were treated you like crap while you were coming, you know, growing up and couldn't express yourself, you know, while you can't choose your family, you could sure as hell choose who you associate with, and they don't have to be members of your family. And last but not least is there are a lot of us out there. We are everywhere. And so you are not alone. Becky Heineman, thank you so much for coming on the show, giving us your story and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. And of course, if anybody wants to follow me, I'm Burger Becky on Twitter and on um YouTube, uh, I sometimes do channels, and on Twitch TV. Yeah, and basically all, any of the socials. If if it's online, Burger Becky will get you to her. 
Exactly. And of course, my company's name is Old School, O-L-D-E-S-K-U-U-L dot com. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transgender Show from the Transverse Network. Watch the full video version of the show live Tuesday nights at twitch.tv slash thetransverse. And be sure to catch our slate of other great shows there as well. If you love what we're doing and want to support The Transverse, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash thetransverse.